We, we looked at all of those scriptures that kind of talk about things like the Egyptians coming to Israel to worship and celebrate the Feast of Booths and, and things like that that we don't see, haven't seen in our time. But, but, and so we, we know that it must happen at a future time. But at the same time, those things don't quite equal the eternal state where there'll be no death, no, no sickness, and, uh, and no curses. And so um, we really, last time, just kind of looked at the Old Testament and maybe a couple of verses in the New Testament, but, but today we want to spend a good amount of time looking at a, a really important text in Revelation chapter 20. And then we want to look at uh, the resurrections, the judgments, and just briefly talk about the eternal state. And if there's, if there's time, and I, I think there probably will be at the end, we will, um, we'll have some time for questions as well. But actually, if, if you have a question about any particular thing that I'm going through at any time, I think just raise your hand and I'll try to acknowledge you when there's a, a moment to do that. So um, we can have a, a little bit of Q&A time tonight as well. So again, last time we looked at the, 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 um, the Old Testament passages on the Millennial Kingdom, um, spoke about what we sometimes call an intermediate kingdom, uh, not, not the intermediate state when we're in heaven without our bodies, but an intermediate kingdom that comes between the age that currently is and the, the age to come. And so there's a, a time between right now and the eternal state, and we sometimes call that the intermediate kingdom or the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, we didn't look at, like I said, we didn't look at Revelation chapter 20, and so I want to spend some time looking at that tonight. Um, the key question as we look at this text is, is this something that's happening presently, or is this describing a future reality? And that's really what, what it comes down to on Revelation 20 and the debate between the all-millennialist, the post-millennialist, and the pre-millennialist. So, Go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. And I want you to have your Bibles because I, I won't be able to keep the verses on the screen the whole time. Okay, Revelation chapter 20. Let's, let's just read the whole section to verse 6 to start with. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now, even as we even get into that, let's just remember what happened in Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ to the earth. And so John then gives us this little reference to time. Then I saw... An angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for Yeah, I pushed mute. Sorry about that, Kevin. Um seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who, was in the devil, uh, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, 
so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that time, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the question when we get to this text, the, the really the, the big interpretive question is, does this describe something that is happening presently, or is this describing something that's future? Remember, if you're all millennialist, you believe that this thousand-year period that des- that's described in this text is um, a, a spiritual metaphor for the reign of Christ in people's hearts and lives in the current time. So if you're... Uh, if you, if you hold to the amillennialist view, what you see described here in chapter 21 to 6 is something that's presently happening now. If you're premillennialist, this would be, and, and in some cases would be your primary text to tell you about the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom that's a future reality that hasn't yet happened. So the question is, when does this happen? What is this describing? Now, I would just say, even for myself, I think Revelation 20 is a really key text, but based on everything that we saw last time with all those Old Testament passages, I think you could have a premillennial view even without Revelation 20. So I, I think you could come to an understanding of the premillennial reign of Christ, and the only thing that you would be necessarily missing if you didn't have Revelation chapter 20 is that that reign is going to be for a thousand years. Um, maybe you would also, but even, even then, even the, the binding of Satan is described in Isaiah chapter 25. And so there, you could get the premillennial view even without Revelation 20. And, and what's happening here then is, is John is just giving us more detail on this time than any other passage of scripture. So, um, let's kind of get into the, the argument. And, and I really want to try to get into the differences between amillennialism and premillennialism according to this text. So, in verses 1 to 3, remember, I saw this angel coming down, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So let's think about this, this sealing. Um, G.R. Beasley, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, says, a seal on a prison door ensures that prisoners could not escape unobserved. Sorry, this cold is unobserved is a really hard word when you have a bit of a nasal cold. Um, 
Only he who authorized the imprisonment could authorize the release from it. And there's some text that you could look at there. Thus, the incarceration of the devil is trebly circumscribed. I don't even know what that means. Um, he is bound up, locked in, sealed over. The writer could hardly have expressed more emphatically the inability of Satan to harm the race of man. So in this text, this the devil is thrown into this pit, and this pit is sealed, and the seal is something that's designed to ensure that he never gets out. Okay? So that's, that's, that's the idea of the seal. Now, I want to read to you a little bit, and some of the quotes tonight I didn't actually have time to transcribe into, uh, into the PowerPoint, but let me just read this here from Matt Waymire's book. This is a really helpful book, um, All Millennialism and the Age to Come. It's a premillennial critique of the two-age model. So, um, and, and why don't we just talk about that just a tiny bit. So, the, the, um, The, one of the primary arguments for amillennialism, remember the, the idea that, that there is no literal reign of Christ for a thousand years on earth, one of the primary arguments for that view is, is what, what they call the two-age model. So in the, in the New Testament, very often there's a description of two ages. The, the current age, the present age, and the age to come. And so the, you know, um, the, 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 the section of scripture, uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, round verse 29, where the, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, accuse Jesus of being a, a prince of the demons, right? And, and there's the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit's happening in that passage. And Jesus says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Well, there's about 10 or so verses like that in the New Testament that talk about this age and the age to come. And the, the amillennialists will say, well, this age is the temporal age of now where there's death and sickness and whatever. And when you look at some of those verses on the age to come, they're, they're passages that speak about eternity and um, eternal life and the lack of sickness, lack of death. And so the, the amillennialists will say, well, there's only, according to the New Testament, there's only this age and the age to come. Therefore, there's no room for an intermediate kingdom that's not this age or the age to come. And so they reject the millennial view on that basis. Now, I would just answer that just very quickly that I see the millennial kingdom as the initial phase of the age to come. It's, it's part of the age to come, but I, I don't think that those passages... Um, make it impossible to see an intermediate stage that's kind of the initial part of the age to come. But that's that's what this book deals with. Matt Waymire was one of my seminary professors at Master's Seminary. He teaches at another seminary now. But all millennialism and the age to come, very, very helpful on, on this issue. Now, here's what Waymire says. He says, in contrast... The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Satan, who is described as the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the ruler of this world, John 12, 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11, 1 John 4, 4, is extremely active on earth during the present age. He not only prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8, 
but he also is involved in a host of other activities. He tells lies, John 8, 44. He tempts believers to sin, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Ephesians 4, 27. He disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11. He seeks to deceive the children of God, 2 Corinthians 11, 3. He snatches the gospel from unbelieving hearts, Matthew 13, 19, and and the other parallel passages. Uh, He takes advantage of believers, 2 Corinthians 2, 11. He influences people to lie, Acts 5, 3. He holds unbelievers under his power, 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Or Ephesians chapter 2, 2, where he's called the prince of the power of the air. Uh, He torments the servants of God, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He thwarts the progress of ministry, 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Satan hindered us, remember that one? He seeks to destroy the faith of believers, Luke 22.31, that's the passage where, where Jesus tells Peter, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And so Satan is seeking to destroy the faith of believers. He wages war against the church, Ephesians 6.11, that passage about spiritual warfare, And he traps and deceives unbelievers, holding them captive to do his will. It is impossible, Matt Weyermeyer concludes then, it is impossible to reconcile this portrayal of Satan's activities in the present age with the view that he is currently sealed in the abyss. So that's the premillennial argument. If, If you look at this passage and you see that Satan is bound and he's in this pit and it's sealed so that he can't deceive the nations any longer. But then you see in the New Testament that Satan is very much active. He's, he's seeking to prowl. He's, he's, he's prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Um, he, he's blinding the minds of unbelievers and all these things that he's doing. It seems clear that whatever's happening in Revelation 20 must be something, really honestly, that's never happened yet in human history. Um, but the amillennialist doesn't see it that way. Now, when we think about this whole idea about the abyss, remember, um, he is thrown into the abyss. Um, that's in Greek, the abusan. Uh, the abusan is the abyss. And, and this, this word appears a few times in the New Testament. Um, you remember this passage? We looked at it in, in Matthew chapter 8 or chapter 9, where... Jesus casts out the demons from the two men. Remember, this is that passage where there's the legion of demons in the two men. Um, although Luke and, and Mark just mentioned the one man. But anyways, Jesus is talking to this man and, and he says, what, what, what is your name? And the man, and really it's the demons inside of the man that are talking. And he says, legion, for many demons had entered him and the, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And so the demons, they, they don't want to go into the abyss. And, and remember, instead they wanted to go into the herd of swine. And this is the same word here, the, the abusan, the abyss that's used in Revelation chapter 20, where Satan is sealed and shut into the pit or into the abyss. Now, the idea here is that this abyss is something that the demons know about, and it's a place that they do not want to go. And I would argue the reason they don't want to go there is because they know that if they go there, they can't do anything else on the earth. It's a place where they're removed and imprisoned in some kind of a, 
uh, a spiritual prison for demon beings, and they don't want to go there. Instead, they say, put us in the pigs. Jesus lets them go into the pigs, and then they kind of go about their business. Um, so that's, the, that's another place that that word is used. That's a really key thing. Next, look at Revelation chapter 9, and we see the same thing there. In Revelation 9, 1 to 3, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key, here's that key again, to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And actually, if we just continued reading, let me just read into verse 6 here, but I don't have it on the screen for you. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, the people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, these beings that are, are even further described in verses 7 to 11 are, are some kind of demon-like beings. And, and the idea here is that when they're removed from this pit, the, the Abusan, they now come and torment the people on the earth. It seemed like that pit was keeping them from doing that. And now that they're released from that pit, they are able to torment the people on the earth. And, and what, what I'm trying to kind of draw from this is just simply this idea that this pit is a place where um, demonic and spiritual beings are in some sort of prison where they're unable from there to, to mess around with the people on the earth. Matt Wehmeyer in this book, uh, that same page, he says, the description of Satan's imprisonment in Revelation 20 is incompatible with the New Testament's portrayal of his influence during the church age, and therefore the binding of Satan cannot be understood as a present reality. So again, let's, let's think about the, um, the significance of this abyss here. Like we saw in Luke chapter, um, in Luke chapter 8 verse 30, this abyss seems to be a, a literal place, a, a, a real place, whether it's literal or not or, or metaphorical, it's a real place where spiritual beings are locked up and tied up. Now, the amillennialist understands Revelation 20 differently. They would understand Revelation 20 as describing the time now, sometimes from the cross, sometimes from Jesus' ministry on the earth, but they see Revelation 20 as kind of a, a parallel to all of those passages that talk about um, the, the triumph of Christ over the principalities and powers that he accomplished at the cross. And so they would understand that that Satan's binding is, is actually right now. So today, Satan is bound. But the binding of Satan in the amillennial view doesn't make him completely inactive on the earth. It merely limits his activities. So Anthony Hokema, uh, Hokema uh, an amillennialist, he says, 
that this passage, Revelation 20, is a figurative description of the way in which Satan's activities will be curbed during the thousand-year period. So it's a figurative description of the way in which his activities will be curbed. Or Riddlebarger, um, whose name I spelled wrong there, um, on the screen anyways, he, he says this, quote, what this binding of Satan means is that after the, the coming of the long-expected Messiah, Satan lost certain authority that he possessed prior to the, the life, death, and burial of uh, resurrection and ascension of the Savior. It does not mean that all satanic operations cease during the millennial age, as many opponents of all millennialism mistakenly assume. So in other words, Satan's activities have some, somehow been curbed, somehow been lessened, but he still does what he does in this age. Uh, another amillennialist, Cox, he says, Satan, though bound, still goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The chain with which he is bound is a long one, allowing him much freedom of movement. So that's kind of how the amillennialists interpret Revelation 20. Uh, the, he's, he's bound, but he's on a, a long leash. Now here's uh, the... Matt Wehmeyer giving us the amillennial argumentation. He says this, according to, accordingly, Storms, and, and Storms, Sam Storms is another amillennialist guy. He says, Storms argues that, quote, if the premillennialist insists on saying that Satan's being cast into the abyss in Revelation 20 must be interpreted in a literal spatial way, he must also affirm the following in order to be consistent. So this is what we would have to um, affirm according to Sam Storms, A, the angel was physically holding a literal key that could literally lock and unlock the pit. B, the angel was holding a literal chain with material links that could be measured. C, the angel literally grabbed the devil and wrestled him into submission and threw him into the pit. And D, Satan was a literal physical serpent, as he is called in verse 2. So that's how Storms would say, that's what we would have to believe if we believe the view that I just presented. Matt Wehmeyer goes on to say, the immediate problem with the argument concerning concerns the false alternative it establishes between the literal and phys- figurative interpretation of the abyss. According to the millennialist, the abyss must be understood as either A, so that's supposed to be according to the millennialist. The abyss must be understood as either A, a literal reference to a physical bottomless pit which extends endlessly into the depths of the earth, or B, a symbolic metaphor signifying the spiritual sphere in which the devil and his accomplices operate. But Waymeyer says, but this ignores the possibility that the abyss in Revelation 20 is a spirit prison for demonic beings, an actual location which imprisons them and prevents them from functioning outside its confines. According to this view, the abyss is an actual location in the spiritual realm where evil spirits are confined and prevented from roaming free on the earth. So that's what, that's what Waymeyer sa- says. That's how he answers that objection from the amillennialists. It doesn't have to be either a woodenly, absolutely woodenly, uh, literal interpretation or a, a symbolic metaphor that really doesn't mean anything. So are you, are you guys kind of able to follow me here as we kind of go through this? 
Waymeyer concludes here and says this then, this understanding of the confinement in the abyss perfectly fits with John's description of Satan's imprisonment and release in Revelation 20. Not only was Satan thrown into the abyss, which is then shut and sealed over, he must first be released from his prison, verse 7, before he can come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. But as, as long as he is confined in the abyss, the devil is not able to depart his prison, and therefore his activity on earth is completely non-existent. Now to see that, just go back to Revelation chapter 20. And we see Satan is first put in this abyss. And then we see this reign of these people um, that are, are said to be resurrected in verses 4 to 6. And then in Revelation chapter 20 verse 7, it says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison... And he will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth. So before, when he was in the abyss, he was unable to um, deceive the nations. In fact, the reason that he was put into the abyss, according to verse 3, is so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. But then in verse 7, he's released from that pit. And now he once again, he comes out and deceives the nations who are in the four corners of the earth. Now, a question here that, that comes up, if we understand the abyss as a, a metaphor representing the spiritual sphere in which the devil and his accomplices operate, which is, which is the all-millennial view, how, does that, how would that fit with Luke 8.31 or Revelation 9.1-6? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in the all-millennial view... Satan is bound in this bottomless pit right now so that he can't deceive the nations. Well, if that's the case, then when we go to Luke chapter 8 and we see the demons begging that they don't get thrown in the pit, but wait a second, if I'm a millennialist, the demons are already in the pit, so why are they begging not to go in the pit? Do you see what I'm talking about there? Does that, does that make sense? You're all, <laughs> this is great. I can tell that I need to re-explain that somehow. So I'm a millennialist. I believe Satan is bound right now and right now he is in the pit. Now, and, and, and that he's been in the pit really during the whole reign of Christ on earth, the whole time that Christ was on the earth 2,000 years ago. Well, if I'm a demon and Jesus is going to cast me out and he's going to throw me in the pigs... And I go, I don't want to go to the abyss. Please put me in the pigs. But the thing is, if I'm a millennialist and I'm a demon, this is getting really awkward. If, but if I'm an all millennialist demon and I'm, then I'm already in the pit. So why would I beg Jesus? Don't put me in the pit. Does that see, are you getting me now? I'm in, I'm already in the pit or in Revelation chapter nine, where the, these certain demon locust things get released from the pit and then they start to wreak havoc on the earth. But if you're all millennialist, then they're already in the pit and they, they can do what they do already. So there's, it doesn't make sense. Go ahead, Will. Well, 
Okay, so so may, so you're saying maybe maybe it's not just Satan, but it's just the demons or just Satan. I would I would think that it means um, Satan and all of his demons, but it doesn't actually say that explicitly. Um, and I've never seen anybody argue that it's only Satan and not the demons. But when you look at the New Testament scriptures, it doesn't just say that demons are blinding the minds of unbelievers. It actually says Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers. So he's doing that while he's bound, if you're all millennialist, he's not bound right now at all if on the premillennial view. So um, I don't, I, so I, I think, I think Luke 8.31 argues for the premillennialist view. Um, right. If otherwise you've got these demons begging or you've got Satan begging to be cast into the sphere or not cast into the sphere where he normally already operates. If you can understand what I'm saying there, um, if he's already in the abyss, then what's the point of casting him in there? Or, or what would it mean when you, when you get to Revelation 20 and verse 7, and now at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released from his prison. How does that even make sense on the all-millennial view? What does that mean that he's, he's getting out of his prison if he's already been kind of doing what he's been doing on the earth in this time? Now, um, that's kind of the first area of, um, of all millennial kind of interpretation is they, they kind of focus on the significance of the abyss there and, uh, and see it as, as a, a non-literal place where Satan is still active. The, the other thing that they, the all millennialist will focus on is the purpose of the binding. And you'll notice in verse three, it says, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, this is a purpose clause, and that purpose clause explains why Satan is bound. But not the nature of his binding. The nature of his binding is that he was in the pit, it was shut and sealed over. The reason that he was thrown in the pit, chained up, thrown in the pit, shut and sealed, was so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, Matt Wehmeyer uses a, what I thought was a really great example. Imagine if we had um, a, a warden in a prison, and he has a, a, a troublesome prisoner. And so he, and, and let's say that troublesome prisoner is, is f- constantly fighting the other prisoners. And I am going to now put him in solitary confinement, and I'm going to shut the door. I'm going to seal it over so that he might not beat the other prisoners anymore. Well, I've, 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 I've done this thing to him for the purpose of him not beating the other prisoners. But now, would it make any sense for me to say, but he can still rob and thief and loot the other prisoners? Do you see what, see what, see that what's happening there? No, he can't. He can't do anything because he's bound and sealed in solitary confinement. The reason that he, I did that is so that he wouldn't beat the other prisoners, but that locking him in there and doing that also restricts all of his activities because his person is locked there. 
And that's the idea here. The, the person known as Satan, the dragon, the serpent, is locked in the, this pit so that he can't do this thing. But he's, don't forget, he's locked in a pit. He can't do, he can't go around and seek whom he may devour if he's actually locked in a, in a physical, or even, I don't even know if I should call it physical. If he's locked in a location, kind of like heaven is a location, it's not maybe so much a physical location right now, but it's a, it's a place. In the same way, um, this pit is a place, just like the pigs were a place for the demons to go, so is the abyss a place, whether it's a physical or not place. But does that make sense, this this purpose clause? But the all-millennialist likes to look at this purpose clause and say, well, Satan can't deceive the nations, but he can do all kinds of other things. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. Um, one problem with, with that view is that Satan is physically, or his person is actually locked in this pit, so I think that's the kind of the first problem. So so it's it's hard to say he's locked in this pit, but he can do all kinds of other stuff. The second problem with this view is that Satan does deceive the nations right now. Um, if he does deceive the nations, how is he bound? Right? He he deceives the individual people in the nations. He's in, in 2 Corinthians 4, he's the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they don't receive the truth. In uh, 2 Timothy 2.26, he is he's captured these peoples so that they do his will. In 1 John 5.19, the whole world is under the sway, the deception of the evil one. So Satan does deceive the nations right now, and I think it's really hard to argue that he doesn't deceive the nations. Um, any questions on... On that. You know, the other argument here in Revelation chapter 20 as far as um, the binding of Satan is, is the New Testament par- kind of parallel passages like where Jesus binds the strong man in Matthew chapter 12 and he casts out the demons. And so they would say, well, see, look at Jesus bound this the strong man here, he's bound Satan, Satan's bound now. I think if in Matthew twelve twenty nine, Jesus binds that one Satan of that one issue and casts out that one demon, I don't think it means that Satan's bound altogether uh, around the world. Um, so, okay, I, that's, that's, part, that's part one of, um, of Revelation. Oh, I, okay, sorry. Sorry, I, th- I thought I was somewhere else here. Look at, look at, look at Revelation 12 here with me for a minute. Um, this is another parallel passage here. Revelation chapter 12, 7 to 9. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Of course, the dragon is, we're going to see a little bit here later, Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, shortly after that, it says, woe to those on the earth, because Satan has been removed. And so there's going to be a time, 
I, I believe, a, a yet future time where there, this war is going to happen and Satan and his demons are going to be expulsed from heaven and they're going to be down on the earth and only on the earth. And Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, is going to come down to the earth and, and just, and, and he knows now that his time is short and, uh, and he wreaks havoc on the earth. Verse 12 says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, this, this passage here, I think, is, is really hard to reconcile with the view of Revelation uh, chapter 20. Matt Wehmeyer says, how can Satan deceive the whole world, Revelation 12, 9, and yet be unable to deceive the nations of the world, Revelation 20, verse 3, at the same time? If Satan is prevented from deceiving the nations during the millennium, and yet he is currently deceiving the nations and will continue to do so until the second coming, the thousand years of Revelation 20 cannot be equated with the present age. So I hope that makes sense to you. The Revelation 12.9, Satan is, is the one who deceives the whole world. He's cast down to the earth to deceive the whole world. Well, in Revelation 20 then, I would say at a future time, he is locked in this pit so he can't deceive the world. <coughs> And so these two things can't be happening at the same time. So when the amillennialist kind of argues for their view on the, as far as the binding goes, the binding of Satan, some of them will say the, the difference is in the degree of receiving, of deceiving. So in other words, Satan is bound and they would kind of take it. He's bound in Revelation 20 so that he can't deceive the nations to the extent that he used to. But again, the problem with that view is Satan himself is cast in to this pit. And the text doesn't say that, that the degree of his deceiving is down. The, the text says that he is put in that pit so that he may not deceive the nations any longer. Another thing that all millennialists talk about is the purpose of deceiving. And they'll say, well, if you look at the text, it's so that he may not deceive the nations any longer. But in chapter, or in verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out and deceive the nations and, and the nations then are going to gather together into a, an army and they're going to come and try to fight against the Lord. And so some amillennialists will say, well, Satan is bound so that he can't deceive the nations and, and bring them into an all-out assault against the people of God like we see like what happens in Revelation uh, 20 verse 7. Or other amillennialists will focus on the fact that they'll, they'll say something like, well, Christ is, or the, the devil is in this pit so that he won't deceive the nations. And, and what this prevents him from doing is kind of stopping the spread of the gospel. But I, I don't, I just think that those interpretations really fall short on that passage. Again, Waymeyer says on page 195 here, he says, the problem with the all-millennial view of the nature of Satan's deception concerns the purpose clause in verse 3. Again, so that he might not deceive the nations. When John says that Satan will be sealed in the abyss so that he would not deceive the nations, 
any longer, verse 3, this indicates the interruption of something that was already taking place. For this reason, the deception from which Satan is prevented in Revelation 21 to 3 is a deception which was already taking place prior to his incarceration in the abyss. Therefore, when the Amillennialist explains the deception as Satan inciting the nations into an all-out catastrophic assault against the church, the question arises, when was this final catastrophic assault launched by Satan prior to the cross? The Amillennialist's inability to point to Satan's leading the nations of the world into an all-out assault to destroy the people of God just prior to the cross proves to be an insurmountable difficulty for this view. Equally problematic, he goes on to say, is the all-millennialist view that the binding of Satan simply restrains him from preventing the spread of the gospel to the nations. The weakness of this explanation is that the purpose clause in verse 3 concerns itself not with the freedom of the church to proclaim the good news, but with the inability of the nations to embrace it. Properly understood, satanic deception of the nations does not prevent believers from preaching the gospel to the world. Satanic deception is something that first takes place in the hearts of the unbelievers who makes up the nations. And he says, put another way, satanic deception does not close the mouths of believers, it deludes the hearts of unbelievers. There is no indication in Revelation 21-3 to that the purpose of Satan's binding was to... Uh, was to allow the gospel to go forth to the Gentiles who had been previously deprived of the good news. So again, both of those views just really don't do justice to what the text actually talks about and says. Okay, so that's just kind of looking so far. We just kind of looked at verses 1 to 3. Now I want to look at, in a little bit more detail, verses 4 to 6. So let's look at that again. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Just bear with me one second. Okay, this text, Revelations 4, Revelation 20, 4 to 6, talks about two resurrections. Two resurrections that happen. Waymeyer says this about this text. He said, maybe I'll just even go back to this text right here, if I can. Uh, 
Again, the most highly debated part of this passage concerns the meaning of the phrase, they came to life in verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Then John says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So the most highly debated part of the passage is the phrase, they came to life in verse 4, and the nature of the first resurrection. According to premillennialism, this first resurrection is the first of two physical resurrections in Revelation 20, which are separated by a thousand years. The first resurrection is of the righteous, the faithful believers who are martyred during the tribulation, whereas the second resurrection is a resurrection of the wicked, the rest of the dead, who did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Verse 5. Those raised in the first resurrection reign with Christ for a thousand years. Those raised in the second resurrection come before the throne of final judgment after the millennium in verses 11 to 15. And of course, Revelation 11 to 15 is the great white throne judgment. So the, the big debate here is what, what is this resurrection? Is this actually talking about a resurrection, a physical resurrection of those who were, were um, martyred in the tribulation? Or in the all-millennial view, this first resurrection isn't actually a resurrection at all. It's either taken as a regeneration or um, it's taken, um, I forget how they even take it. Or it's, it's taken as um, the uh, people dying, believers dying, and going to be with Christ in heaven. So um, I would just, I, I look at this text, and, and on a plain reading of this text, it seems like we're talking about these exact same people that we saw in Revelation chapter 6. Um, they had the, the testimony of Jesus, and... Um, they, they hadn't worshipped the beast or its image. They hadn't received its mark on their foreheads. Um, these are, are described in Revelation chapter 6, 9 to 11 as martyrs. They have given, they've given their life for Christ. And now they are resurrected and they're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, if you don't take this as a physical resurrection in, in these verses, then the whole book of Revelation doesn't say anything about a physical resurrection of believers, which I, I think is just really hard to see. A, a book talking about the end times and our future hope, and it doesn't say anything about the resurrection of believers, which is our, our great hope and kind of the, the main part of our faith. Uh, I think that's hard to believe. But that's the all-millennial position, is that this doesn't talk about a literal resurrection at this time, because, of course, they don't see us reigning with Christ for a thousand years. They think that that's already happening now. And so when they came to life right here, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years, they either, again, they take this either as, as regeneration, or they take it as... Um, I guess you just call it like death and entering into the intermediate state. And I'm not going to write intermediate state, but that's, that's kind of where the debate is. And the reason that they, they get here is they, they really focus on this, 
this here, this thing, this first resurrection. Now, when I, when I read first resurrection there, I think it's the first resurrection in a series of resurrections. First, these people are resurrected and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Second, the, uh, the rest of the dead, um, the rest of the dead come to life in verse 11 and they are judged in the great white throne judgment. And they did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. The, the two, um, this here, they came to life is a single verb in the original. And this here did not come to life again is a single verb negated. Um, but in the amillennial interpretation of this, these two are speaking about different things. This, they came to life, is either, again, speaking about regeneration or the fact that believers died and went to be with Christ in heaven. But this coming to life is actually a physical resurrection at the end of, the, um, at the end of this age where unbelievers are judged. And so, again, I, I should um, erase all of this here. But again, the same word, they came to life, and even later that the, the word, the word for resurrection, they came to life and did not come to life. That's the same, but again, interpreted differently in such a close context. And again, first resurrection, and then in Revelation chapter 11, there's a resurrection, and it talks about it being the second resurrection. And I should just read that for you too. Look at, look at that in your Bibles. Um, Revelation 20.11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name who was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so here what we see in Revelation twenty eleven, this is when the rest of the dead are actually resurrected. And wherever they died, whether in the sea or wherever they were, they were resurrected, and then judged. Now that word resurrection, where it says the first resurrection, that word is used 41 times in the New Testament, and 38 out of its um, 39 uses, outside of the book of Revelation, it refers to a physical Resurrection. Somebody had died and they are physically resurrected. Now, one time it's used in Luke chapter 2, verses 34, where it's not speaking about a physical resurrection and there's not any death in the, in the immediate context. But every other time, this word for resurrection, the first resurrection, is used of a literal physical resurrection. So the burden of proof would have to be on the amillennialist to to, to say, why would we interpret this any different? Remember, again, these folks were martyred in, in chapter 6, and then they 
came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Waymeyer just kind of emphasizes again. He says that he, he makes it clear, John makes it clear by using the same verb to refer to the same act or experience in both uses. Therefore, whatever happens to the one group also happened to the other. If one resurrection is physical, then the other must be physical as well. So that I think I think that's I think that's all I even am gonna say about that so far. Again, just to, just to kind of reemphasize, what is, what is the, the all-millennial view on this? Um, the all-millennial view, again, this they came to life is different than the rest of the dead did not come to life. And they're, they're taking this word resurrection in a sense in, in which it doesn't mean anywhere else in Scripture. Resurrection, this word, is never used of regeneration, um, and it's never used of the entrance of believers into life in heaven when they die. So I think that's all I really want to say about that. Um, yeah. I said that. Okay, the, the last thing I want to look at in this, in this context is the, the idea of the thousand years. And so, um, I guess, let me just start by noting in Revelation chapter 20, I believe it's six times that it says that there's going to be a thousand year. Um, let me read again from Waymeyer's book. He says, quote, Amillennialism teaches that the thousand years of Revelation 20 represents the time between the first and second comings of Christ. In other words, the time that we're in right now. But this raises an obvious question. If the millennium is the present age, how can the thousand years of Revelation 20 refer to a period of time that is nearly 2,000 years and counting? Put simply, if the Apostle John intended the thousand years to be understood literally, the millennium cannot be equated with the present age, and all millennialism is confronted with an insurmountable problem. And what, of course, the all millennialist does to kind of overcome that problem is that they say that the thousand years should be interpreted figuratively. That we shouldn't interpret it literally. It's not a, a literal, actual thousand-year period. It's just um, a symbolic number to talk to us about a really long time period. Um, now, there's, there's a lot of arguments that we could kind of get into as far as against that view. I would... I would just say that, that um, unless there's a really good reason to interpret a number symbolically in the context, there's really... There's really no need to do that. Um, here's a couple of rules that, that um, hermeneutics gives as far as when should you take a number or even 
any passage symbolically instead of literally. Um, and, and so here's three questions that we could ask about the thousand years. First, does it possess a degree of absurdity when taken literally? Um, with symbolic language, there's, there's something inherent in the language itself which compels the exegete to look beyond the literal meaning. Uh, if a statement would obviously be irrational, unreasonable, or absurd if taken literally, the presumption is that it's a figure of speech. Another rule to, to kind of look at, when do you take something symbolically? Does it possess a degree of clarity when taken symbolically? So does it possess a degree of clarity when taken symbolically? For example, um, in Revelation chapter 20, let's just think about earlier Revelation 20, we saw a great chain. And um, if we take that chain and we say that it's a literal chain, there's a sense in which that's absurd, right? Because how could there be a literal chain to hold a spiritual being? How could a physical chain bind a spiritual being? And if we, if we instead take it symbolically, it all of a sudden it has a great degree of clarity because we go, oh, just like a literal chain would, would bind a person, so this chain symbolically taken is something that can bind Satan and keep him from doing. So it possesses a, a great degree of clarity when it's taken symbolically. And so when something works that way, then we should take it symbolically. Third, does it fall into an established category of symbolic language? And if we kind of take those thousand years in Revelation 20, we see that it doesn't meet any of those criteria. There's nothing absurd or unintelligible about a thousand years that compels us to take it um, in some other way other than literally. There's no degree of clarity when the thousand years is taken symbolically. So let's just say, what is a symbolic thousand years? It doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't like, oh, now I see. Right? If I, if I take a, the chain from Revelation 20 and I say, oh, it's a symbolic chain and it means imprisonment and binding, okay, that makes sense. But when I take a thousand years, it makes no more sense to us if we take it um, symbolically. And then, um, of course, thirdly, there, there's no established category of symbolic language. And if you look through all the numbers in Revelations, there are a few that are symbolic. But again, there's, there's nothing special about the number 1,000 that tells us that it's a special symbolic number. So, um, so that, kind of, that kind of ends us then on Revelation chapter 20. And uh, let's, um, let's continue on here a little bit longer here. Now, when the thousand years are ended, we're just kind of moving again into the rest of Revelation 20. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea and they, are, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So after the millennial reign of Christ, 
the thousand-year reign, and, and I, I do take it as a literal thousand-year period, although a lot of premillennialists won't, won't even say for sure what, what they take, if, if they take it as an actual literal thousand years or not. Some, some I've learned just take it symbolically, like, like all millennialists, just for a long time. But I think it, because of Revelation 20, because of it's mentioned six times in the context, I think it's best to take it as a literal thousand-year period. But after that reign, Satan's going to be released for a short while. And in that short while, he's going to be allowed once again to deceive the nations. And the nations are going to gather together uh, against God's people and the holy city, uh, Jerusalem. And he's going to incite this uprising against Christ, gather an army against Jerusalem, and the people who are, are going to take part in that rebellion, it's, it would seem to me, are are unregenerate people, unsaved people who are born during the millennium but not genuinely converted to Christ. And so in the, in the beginning of the millennium when Christ returns, he's going to destroy all his enemies and there's going to be this judgment, the sheep and the goats judgment. And in the sheep and the goats judgment, no unbelievers are going to enter into the millennial reign of Christ. But some of those people were believers on the earth and they haven't been resurrected yet if we understand things correctly. And, and because they're not resurrected yet, they're going to have children just like we do now. And so during that thousand-year period, there's going to be all kinds of children born in the world. And some of those children, it's, it would seem, are not going to be genuinely converted, not saved. And at the end of the thousand years, kind of children's children's children, there's going to be this the release of Satan and some of these people are going to be deceived and they're going to try to conquer Christ and his kingdom. And then, of course, fire comes down from heaven, destroys them, and then Revelation 20, this is the great white throne. This is the rest of the dead who now come to life and they are judged and cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so that's what's going to happen at the end. Now, now, you know, if you've, if you've kind of followed the last two le- lectures, really, as far as like following the sequence of eschatology and following the, the chronology, if you just follow Revelation chapter 6 and you just kind of read through verse by verse and work your way through, the whole chronology is right there perfectly aligned. So Revelation 6 is the, the tribulation. Before that, we saw in Revelations 2 and 3, we saw the, the church there. After Revelation 2 and 3, we never see the church again. We see, and so I think somewhere in there, the rapture happens. Then you have this, this heavenly scene that happens in chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 6 is the beginning of, of the, the tribulation period. And it, it just kind of follows through Revelation 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way to chapter 18. Chapter 19 is the end of the tribulation, the return of Christ. Chapter 20 it talks about the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, chapter 20, 11 to 15 talks about the final judgment. And then chapter 21 and 22 is the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you just read through the book of Revelation chronologically and understand it that way, you'll see that... Um, that, that, that gives the order right there. And I don't think there's any need to confuse it the way that some interpreters do by, by seeing all this recapitulation and things happening again 
Just follow the order of Revelation and you'll see the whole order of end time events. And so Revelation 20, the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, this judgment is only of unbelievers. This is a judgment. There's no mention of believers here. This is only unbelievers whose names weren't written in the book of life. And this is unbelieving from, from all ages. They're going to be resurrected and cast into the lake of fire. Before they were in the lake of fire, those who were dead were in Hades, the intermediate place of judgment in the intermediate state. And so they were, they were without their bodies. They, they, you know, somebody dies right now. They die. They, their soul goes to either heaven or Hades. Uh, Hades is a place of judgment, but at the final judgment, those people will be resurrected and then cast into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night for all eternity. And we will be, um, uh, those who have trusted in Christ will be for all eternity in the new heaven and new earth reigning with Christ forever. (coughs) Now, um, in the last few minutes of time that we have left, I just want to quickly go through this question of judgments. Because I've given you the order of everything as I understand it, but um, I haven't then really kind of clarified the, the order of the resurrections and judgments. And so I just want to do that fairly quickly. So let's talk about resurrections. (coughs) The first resurrection is Christ. He is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Of course, course Christ is the first to be resurrected, and he's in a glorified body right now. Then, those who are are Christ's at his coming, the rapture. And so we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, and again in verse 51 and following there, and then 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and 17. Remember, those who have fallen in, uh, asleep in Christ, they're going to rise first, and then we who are alive at the coming of the Lord are going to meet them in the air, and we also are going to be resurrected at that time. So at the rapture, we're going to be resurrected and given our resurrected bodies. In Revelation chapter 11, there's two witnesses who are resurrected and then they're taken up directly into heaven from the tribulation. And you can read about that in chapter 11. Um, at the end of the tribulation, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs are going to be resurrected. And we just read about that in, in Revelation 20 verse, verses 4 to 6. And so those, those guys are going to be resurrected and we all together with them are going to enter into the millennial kingdom. And then fifth, the wicked after the, the millennial kingdom in the great white throne judgment, they're going to be the final resurrection and that is the second death. So again, that's Revelation 20, the, the first bit, the, the, that was the first resurrection, but the rest of the dead, they didn't come to life until the thousand years was over. That's these guys right here. And so that, that's kind of the order of the resurrections as I understand it. Now, um, let's talk about judgment then, because when we die, right, Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Well, when we die, I think there's, there's got to be, and, and Scripture doesn't really talk too much about this, but there's got to be some kind of at least an immediate judgment for the saved and the unsaved, at the very least, we know that 
believers immediately enter into the presence of the Lord, whereas unbelievers enter into Hades and, and eternal torment. And so there's at least a distinction, then we could say, between the righteous and the unrighteous at the moment of death. Um, I just, oh, just that verse was in there. So, um, so the, the, so that, so there's kind of that initial, like, placement of people when they die. But then the, the, the real judgment is the, what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And this is a judgment for believers that happens at some point after the rapture and before the marriage supper of the Lamb in, in, in uh, Revelation 19. And, uh, there's this judgment of believers. And at this judgment, rewards are given for faithful service to Christ. Um, now I didn't, I guess I didn't put these verses, but, but I've got the verses here for you. Romans 14, 10, um, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 4, 5, and 2 Corinthians 5 talks about the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment seat of God. It's a judgment for both our good and bad, but it's as believers, we're not going to be, um, we're not going to bear God's wrath, but our wicked, or evil works or bad works are also going to be judged. Our idle words are going to be judged. And those useless things are going to be burned up and removed. And I think that's going to be a great relief to us to see the, the wicked things that we have done, even as believers, to be kind of judged and removed. And we're going to celebrate that. And, uh, of course, there's that, that kind of bit of a scary passage. I think it's in 1 Corinthians that that, there's going to be that, that, that guy who is, saved but as through fire and it seems like he has no rewards at all but he's he's saved he's in heaven that's a wonderful thing but it seems like everything he's done in his life has been useless and a waste and uh, and so that's a this is a judgment for the believer that we want to take uh, very seriously the everything that we do good or bad is going to be rewarded and really all scripture talks about that and even the attributes of god argue that there's got to be a judgment um for the world. The third judgment that we see in scripture is the judgment of the tribulation. And that's where God's wrath is poured out on the world, kind of on the world that, that is at that time in that tribulation time. That's a, a time of God's judgment on the world. Then in Zechariah twelve ten, there's a judgment of living Israelites near the end of the tribulation. Um, there's a, as the, as the tribulation happens, um, it seems that only a third of Israel are going to survive the tribulation and make it through this judgment. Um, but then there's a, a final judgment of the sheep and the goats, um, the, the judgment of the Old Testament and tribulation saints. Uh, immediately after their resurrection, before their entrance into the millennial kingdom, uh, and, then there's, and then there's the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Um, before entry into the kingdom again, everyone is going to be judged and, and no unbelievers, it would seem in my view, are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then again, finally, the final judgment is the great white throne judgment. Now, um, there's, there's maybe three passages that, that I should just quickly reference. Daniel 12, 1 to 3. Um, John five, twenty seven and twenty eight, and the third passage is is eluding me right now. 
But those passages just speak generally of a judgment. And, um, and, and, and we don't see any kind of time separation in that judgment. So let me just read to you John chapter 5. Jesus says, John 5.28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, that is the voice of the Son of Man, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And there's a, another passage in, in Daniel, same thing, where there's a, a resurrection of of those who have done good to life and a resurrection of those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. And sometimes from those passages, people will argue that there is only one judgment and that the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of God, um, the judgment of the sheep and the goats in, in Matthew 25 and the judgment of Revelation 20 are all the same judgment. And I would just say that when we look at John 5, 28, Jesus is just kind of bringing together this idea that there's going to be a judgment for all. And, and I don't think we, that, that these texts necessitate that we can't see that these judgments would be separated, um, by different time periods. So, um, those are the judgments that I see in scripture as far as I understand it. As far as the eternal state goes, remember we talked about that when we looked at Matthew 6. 19 to 21. And if you want to, you could look at those sermons, talk about the glories and the greatness of heaven, something that we should be constantly looking forward to. And, uh, and so that kind of, that wraps up our, our overview of future events. There's the church age, which we're in right now. The next thing on the prophetic timetable again is the rapture. Christ is going to gather his saints. At that time, there's the resurrection of dead believers and those who are alive when Christ returns. There's going to be the judgment seat of Christ in heaven for us. When after the rapture, we're going to live with Jesus that, that where he is, we also may be at the right hand of God in heaven. Um, then on earth at that time, there's the tribulation, judgment on the living world, uh, the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, the, the beast himself, all of those things happening uh, during the tribulation, the witnesses, the 144,000. There's the salvation and the judgment of Israel that happens during the tribulation. Then Christ returns, second coming, and uh, establishes his kingdom. As he does that, he judges the Gentile nations in the sheep and the goats judgment of Ma uh, Matthew 25. There's the resurrection and the, the judgment of Old Testament and tribulation saints before they enter the kingdom. And then there's the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth where we reign with him over uh, a somewhat renewed earth, but not quite like the eternal state. After the millennial kingdom, there's the release of Satan, and uh, he's going to come out and deceive the nations. There's going to be that final judgment on uh, those people, and then there's the great white throne judgment, and uh, then there's the eternal state, either the lake of fire or the new heaven and the new earth for us. And so that's kind of a, an overview of the, the future events. Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our, our time together, and... Uh, just pray that you'd help us to understand these things. I know that for for most of the people that I've ever talked to, it just takes a, a number of times to hear these things. Just pray that you would help us to understand and, and pray most of all that you would help us to long for and look forward to your coming and uh, to that time in heaven, that time when you reward us for all that we've done. 
Uh, we pray that you would help us to live with, with that eternal mindset and help us to understand the, the good hope that we have in you and in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.